Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Join us for a journey. As we go back to the great civilizations of the past, who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this very special edition of Fan of History. And it is a very special edition because we're here with Dr. Robert Milehammer, and he is a linguist. Oh, his latest book is called The Carthaginian North, Semitic Influence on Early Germanic, a Linguistic and Cultural Study. And I found out about him um, in an article that I read on The Conversation, which was called Schilling's Gods and Runes. Clues in language suggests a Semitic superpower in the in ancient Northern Europe. And that was a pretty impressive title. So I, when I checked that out, I looked up Dr. Ma, I, it's, pronounced, it's spelled like Mailhammer, and I keep pronouncing it wrong. So I apologize to Dr. and to the listeners. Um, but when I met him um, online and asked if he'd do this podcast, I was uh, pretty excited, especially since... Dan had a real archaeologist on, so now I have a real linguist. So um, I'm definitely interested to hear what he has to say, and I hope you guys are too. So let's welcome Dr. Mile Hummer, and can you tell us something about your research and something about yourself too, maybe? Yeah, thanks, Bernie, first of all, for the invitation and for this opportunity to talk about my work um, and about things that I get excited about and I'm enthusiastic about. So I'm a linguist um, and I specialize in historical linguistics, um, which is the um, the study of how languages develop and how they evolve. And um, one of the things that I've been interested in since I've since I basically started um, my undergraduate degree at Munich University was um, 
how um you know the early Germanic people how the language um, developed and how it's how how languages ancient Germanic languages like Old English um, were spoken and how they were different from modern English and um, when I did my PhD at um, Munich University my um, my advisor was uh, Professor Theo Fenemann who was my co-author on this recent book and he had this theory that um, Germanic which is the ancestor of all um, Germanic languages, so languages like English, German, Swedish and um, Norwegian, for example, um, were influenced um, by another language, um, which is sort of from um, a different language group. And he thought they were Semitic languages. Semitic languages are a large language family, um, in the, mainly based in the Mediterranean and in Africa. And members of this family include Arabic, Hebrew, um, Phoenician, for example, Akkadian and many other languages. And so when when I finished my PhD, I thought oh, this was a good idea to um, investigate this further. My PhD had investigated a, a, a tangent of this particular theory, but then we got into it a, a bit more. And then after you know after a few years, um, um, my advisor you know thought thought it would be a good idea to to write a book together and um, to summarize the entire theory because one of the problems was that the theory was um, spread across you know a million articles rather than one single book. So this is the sort of backstory to this. And when we wrote the book, um, we, it was clear that we wanted to write it so that it could be understood, um, you know, by non-specialists. Um, and um, it turned out that we weren't very good at that, <laughs> writing like that. We, we're academics, so we write for academics. And it turned out to be a book for linguists, and which is why we thought it would be a good idea now to, um, you know, to try to sort of break it down and make it a bit more accessible. And this is one of the one of the opportunities um, for me now to um, talk about this in more detail. Right. So, it, it seems like yeah. people, t like the, the, a lot of lay people that study history, they like the, the aliens built the pyramids type of things. And, yeah. and when you really <laughs> get into the details, they they don't they don't get into it as much as people like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the thing is that um, there's a lot of crazy theories, and what you have to deal with when you develop. Um, something that's novel and innovative, you have to deal with a lot of those um, aliens built the pyramids um, <laughs> stories, and um, it's very, it's very difficult um, to get away from that sort of, um, um, you know, from that sort of reputation, right. um, because it is a bit of a crazy thought initially. But when you think about it a bit more, it turns actually out turns out that it's not that crazy. Right. Um, so because like, because what we what we tend to assume is that. Um, globalization and you know global accessibility um, of goods and everything is a more recent thing, right? I mean that's what we assume that you know industrialization and um, you know the British Empire and all this sort of stuff happened fairly recently. But what everybody knows who studied archaeology and history knows that um, global networks have existed since the Stone Age pretty much. So people traveled far um, in early times, and um, um, so. But uh, I, I get back to the start. So how this how this started was that you know every linguist who studied the history of the Germanic languages knows that there are a few things about the Germanic languages that are strange compared to their relatives um, like French and um, Spanish and Sanskrit and many other languages of this group, which are called the Indo-European languages, and no one really has found a good explanation for them. Okay, um, so there are things about the way we um, Use um, the words are called verbs. So we have, um, you know, the past tense of sing is sang, um, um, 
in in English, for example, and mm-hmm. this type of this type of, of of construction is quite rare in in this consequence in 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 the European languages, but it's very common in Semitic languages. This is in fact how Semitic languages do things by changing vowels. Okay. So there are things like that. But the other thing that we found is that the runic alphabet, which is pretty much the the the, the native um, Germanic uh, writing system, and everybody's seen um, runic scripts um, from the uh, from the unfortunate past of 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 you know um, countries like Germany, where the runes were um, used um, for propaganda purposes. So most people have seen runes, and they look a bit different to um, our letters, our Roman letters. Um, and there are also there's many other peculiarities that are weird that no one has found an explanation for. So to cut a long story short, we found a few things in Germanic um, languages that we could no no one had been able to explain. And Theo Fenneman's idea was that maybe we should look outside the language family for some explanations. And he realized that the major seafarers at around 500 BC were the Phoenicians. Hey, those were the, those were the, the master seafarers in the time. Right. And that's well known. There is no there is no um there's no innovation right. here, right? And the um, major superpower in the Mediterranean before the Romans really took off were the Carthaginians, who were Phoenicians, uh, Western Phoenicians, if you want. They took over the Phoenician um, trade posts and colonies in the West, everywhere in the West. So when we say Phoenicians, um, we mean it in the sense that the Carthaginians are extensions of the Phoenicians. Okay. So when you're saying the Phoenicians, yeah, you mean the Carthaginians. Any these contacts are coming from Carthage, not from the yes. Levant Phoenicians. Okay. I mean, the the, the Carthaginians uh, called themselves the Canaanites, so there okay. were people, from, uh, and um, that's what they that's what they call themselves. But they're all, um, you know, culturally speaking, Phoenicians. Gotcha. Um, and there wasn't, it wasn't the case that they, um, that the Carthaginians sort of, um, had a, a war going on with the Phoenicians, with the rest of the Phoenicians, with the Eastern Phoenicians. They basically just took over because the, because Carthage became so big that it just uh, took over all the colonies. Now Carthage in 500 BC, as I said, was a major superpower. Um, it, um, fought the Greeks everywhere, um, mainly in Sicily, um, and won largely. Um, they were allied with the Etruscans. And there's reason to believe that there are many Phoenician foundations um, and Carthaginians as well-founded cities in Italy. And um, so around about that time, the Carthaginians um, expanded their empire and they expanded it in two different directions. One was around Africa and one was around Northern Europe. And there are, and in our book, we explain this in quite detail, in detail and that's all well known. They, they staged two big expeditions with, uh, you know, several um, you know, ten thousands of of people and and and, and ships to the south of, uh, into Africa, and they uh, got around um, Cape Horn in the south. Um, so they were they were go, 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 went around really really far. Okay, what year was that? Um, that no. was well, it's hard to date this, but um, it's around about 500 BC. Gotcha. We know this because Carthage in Carthage there were t- there were two large. Um, Golden plates um, were put up for display, and they detailed the results and the sort of um, um, major findings of the expedition. And there's every reason to assume that we had, um, you know, plates like this for the northern expedition. But unfortunately, when Carthage was destroyed, um, everything the records got destroyed. So we only have a, a Roman, a, a Latin poem 
with um, stages of the journey, but it's to be assumed that they went to the north as well. And if somebody could pull it off to go to Denmark at that time, it was the Carthaginians because they already had trading posts in in Spain, in northern Spain, mm-hmm. um, north uh, western Spain. La, La Coruña is probably um, a Carthaginian foundation, if, if, maybe even earlier. And um, they had also um, they, they were they were getting the the copper and the tin from the British Isles. Right. And from there, it's not far to Denmark. Of course. So we so Fenneman thought that, hey. We've always been looking for people who come via, um, you know, the continent over land, but actually it's much quicker um, across the sea. And the Carthaginians are really close. They're the only major superpower who, which controlled the West, because uh, at that time the major obstacle towards to get out to the Mediterranean from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic were, was the, the Strait of Gibraltar, which is uh, where the Pillars of Hercules were. Mm-hmm. And the Greeks thought the end would, the world would end there. So no one dared go beyond the Pillars of Hercules, um, at least um, in the major expeditions, apart from the, the Phoenicians. who always been traveling this area. So he thought maybe the Phoenicians. So what we are looking, what we were looking for, we were looking for parallels in Punic, which is the language of the Carthaginians, and Germanic. And we, we found quite a few things. Now, how do you do that? How do you find... Like, it's, I, I, Break that down a little, just for me, because I don't. How, yeah. how do you find that kind of stuff? So there is um there is a few areas that you can look at. So normally this is a this is a subfield of historical linguistics, which is called contact linguistics. So you look at the effects of language contact, and there are well established frameworks for doing this. But basically, you find things that you know in the language. There may be words. Or there may be um, linguistic structures that you can explain um, internally, which means by development from um, the um, parent language. Okay, so in in our Germanic case, the ancestral language of all Germanic languages is called Proto-Germanic, and Proto-Germanic is the ancestor of a language like Old English. Okay, and Old English is the ancestor of Middle English, and then goes to Modern English. So in, in our case, Proto-Germanic is the language that was spoken by the Germanic people before the Germanic people branched out. And that language had a parent language, which is called Proto-Indo-European. And normally you would expect things in Proto-Germanic to be explainable as developments from Proto-Indo-European. And we couldn't. No one can. And no one's found explanation for those things. So I'm talking about words um, like, for example, the word which is modern English folk, or like in a folk song or something, mm-hmm. which um, used to mean division of an army in, in older stages of the language. And, you know, no one knew where the word came from. And there's a few words like that from um, the whole semantic area of war and government. There's a few, um, there's a lot of words where, where we didn't know where they come from. Then we looked at syntactic structure. So, for example, the word order of Germanic, how you align words in Germanic languages in a sentence, is quite different to um, all the other languages in the family. Okay? Um, English doesn't do this a lot anymore, but languages like German, they have this strange thing. And Mark Twain talked about this at length when in his essay on German, when he said that you know you start with a part of the verb and then the whole sentence rattles off, and you've got to wait till the end of the verb or Till the verb comes, till you know what's going on, until the whole sentence is finished. And it, it, he made fun of this, and it's quite strange. 
And it's it's quite funny when you learn German, when you read German, that you you know you read an entire sentence and you don't actually know what's happening until the last word. I didn't yeah, realize that. <laughs> quite a weird thing. You know, English has uh, re remnants of this, um, but basically got rid of this, um, you know, in, in, you know, Middle English, um, you know, around five or six hundred years ago when the word order s changed. But Germanic is quite unique in that. And it's 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 unexplained because the Indo-European languages generally have the word at the end, the, the verb at the end, but they don't have it at the beginning. And uh, Germanic languages have it at the beginning and at the end very often. But the strange thing is not that the verb is at the end. The strange thing is that the Germanic language has moved it to the front um, for a large part of the sentence. So Germanic is split like that, right? So Old English has the verb coming early and it's coming late. So that's a strange thing that no one was able to explain. Um, and it was it was weird to see that there was an Indo-European language that had a verb that moved forward while still had having some types of sentence where the verb was at the back. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, so those are features like that, and then I talked about the verbs already, which is a bit more complicated. But basically, the the types of verbs that we call irregular verbs in English, such as yeah. things. There's a million of them. There's a few of them. Yeah. It seems <laughs> like every language. It seems you know. About three hundred. There's about three hundred of them, but they're so frequent. That they're the most ones you use the most, though. Sorry. They're the ones you use the most. Yes. They're so frequent. Like when kids talk, so they always say those the, mo the things wrong because they just go along with, like, I can't think of the top of my head, but you know how they'll just say words that's cute because they just assume it's a certain way, but it's not the way you say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in Australia, I don't know about the US, but in Australia, one common thing that people do when they um, they say, I brung it instead right. of I brought it. Right, <laughs> right, right. Well, you, what it should be, bring, bring. Br I used to say bring when I was a kid. My grandmother used to yell at me all the time. It's not bring, it's brought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brought is strange, right? It's right. really weird. Um, so we have this type, bring, bring, brang, sing, sang, and cling, clung. There's all of these, right? There's loads of them. And that's a type that is really not normal for the language family. All Germanic languages have this extensively and I'll but not the indo-europeans mostly don't use that indo-european have changes in the vowels but not to the degree that germanic uses it where it's the only thing that tells you something about the grammar okay so gotcha. in english the um the fact that you have sang sang is the only the, the the vowel change is the only thing that tells you this is past tense right whereas because otherwise a kid would a kid maybe would say i singed yes exactly right Yes. So, and that's what children sometimes do, in fact. Um, um, but the, the the sing sang type is is strange because normally in Indo-European languages, and if you speak Latin or something, you know that you can have a change of vowels. But there's other th other things going on. There's you know there's there's other things like um, you know another affix. So you know so you know the the the, the perfect in in Greek to lepa leave is leloipa so you have a change in vowel but you have all this other stuff going on as well and germanic reduces the expression of tense just on the change of vowel hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And no one's been able to explain this. No one. And people have learned this, you know, over generations in linguistics. And in old English, you've learned all these different types. But no one's been able to explain this. It's a real mystery in Germanic why why this would happen. And also because vowel change is such a strange thing. You said you just said that the children, you know, the people would say sings. You know, that's right. far more normal and far more easier to understand. You add, you add something at the end. Okay, that's the past tense. But the vowel change, very few languages in the world have this um, phenomenon. Um, so that's 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 the kind of thing. And then I think one of the things that is um, not directly language that's also that's already on the periphery to external evidence is the runic alphabet. Um, the runic alphabet has so has such strange peculiarities that no one's been able to explain its origin. There's three or four theories out there, but you know, if there's three or four theories out there, they can't all be correct. That's right. They <laughs> made all. They it's made a little all... bit of each. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so the. The runic, the, run, the runic alphabet has this strange thing. It starts with the letter F, you know. Okay. Um, no other alphabet in the area starts with the letter F. Um, no um, other alphabet has have names for the letters, right? So Greek, the Greek, the Greek word alpha doesn't mean anything. It's just it's just a, a, an empty string of of sounds, right? Okay. You know, alpha has no has no meaning in Greek. It doesn't mean tree or anything like that, right? Okay. Now the um, did it mean something in Phoenician or something first? I forget. Yeah. So 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 the funny thing is, we all know that the um, that the Greek alphabet is a, is bo- was borrowed from Phoenician, right? Yeah. Um, and in Phoenician, um, or in you know in in in, Cathy- in, in, in Punic, same and in, in Hebrew, the first the first letter is called Aleph. Okay. Right. Um, which is very similar to Alpha, basically, right? And that's how the Greeks got the name. They they tried to pronounce Aleph and they said Alpha, and that's the first gotcha. uh, name of the letter. Um, I hold off on the meaning in in Punic because um, that's part of the punchline. Okay. <laughs> so in Germanic, the runic um, letters have names. Okay. Um, and the first the first letter is called Fechu, and Fechu means bull or um, you know um, cattle. Okay. Okay. And all the runic uh, letters have names, which no one's been able to explain. You know, people have thought that oh, this might be something of an innovation, but no one's been conclusively you know, been able to explain why this would happen there and and why in that particular order, because it starts with F. And you know, even the 
Etruscan alphabets and the Romans and the Greeks, they don't start like that. Right? And there's a few other things that are strange um, about, um, but they're, they're more detailed. So you have this system, let's us have names, names that actually mean something, and you have the strange ordering, okay? So now, going back to the Carthaginian um, um, letters, and then the other thing is that the runic letters look strange. Most of them look different. They look very, very different from uh, the Roman letters. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen runic alphabets, they just look different. So if you go to the Punic alphabet, it, also, it immediately is striking that most of the um, Punic letters look very similar to the runic letters. Oh. Okay. And the weird thing is, um, the first letter, as I said, is the letter Aleph. Okay. Um, and, and Aleph actually means something because in, in all um, Semitic alphabets, um, the letters have names that mean something. Okay. And this is the reason for this is, of course, that this was developed from the hieroglyph, hier hieroglyphic um, Right. I think writing. I did read that sometime. Sorry? I did. I think I read that. Sorry. I'm just, yes. Go on. I, I'm yeah, sorry so, to interrupt you. But, you know, the, somebody somebody uh, realized that you could use the hieroglyphs for um, as an alphabet script if you just said, okay, well, this is the word for house. It's called bet. Uh, so it has a b, uh, and we'll use it for the, the, the sound b. Okay, so they reduced the, the, the number of hieroglyphs drastically just to the sounds of the language, and that's how you get the alphabet. So in Phoenician, um, you know, Hebrew and all Semitic languages, the first letter is called Aleph, and Aleph means cattle. Okay, okay just yeah. like Fehu means bull or cattle, just the same, it's the same meaning. Okay? Oh, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Interestingly, the way the runic alphabet writes Fehu, it doesn't look like an F. It looks a bit like an F, except that the, um, the, 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 the small bars of the F pointing, they're pointing upwards rather than downwards or, or, or parallel, right? Horizontally. And this is exactly how the Punic, uh, Aleph looks like. Oh, wow. It's not like the Phoenician Aleph looks like or the Hebrew Aleph looks like. It's just like the Punic alphabet looks like, <laughs> writes the Aleph. So now that, listen, let me interrupt you for one second because that was, yeah. I had that as, so Phoenician and Punic are different. Yeah, they, well, so they're dialects. They're dialects. Okay. Um, um, so dialects that progressively diverge. So um, at some point, Punic, I mean, you know, if you had a Western Phoenician Punic speaker from, I don't know, um, you know, Carthage or further, further west, let's say, you know, modern Spanish Cadiz, which is where they, where they had a big stronghold in Spain. Okay. If they had traveled to um, Tyre or something in, in eastern Phoenicia, they would have been probably difficult to understand each other, you know, um, you know, 200. Right. Uh, Could be like an English and a German person. They could kind of catch a couple yes. of the words. But. Yeah, so initially, uh, you know, maybe 500 BC, if you, if you read a, an old, if you read a Phoenician text, um, it's very similar to um, Punic, but pr uh, progressively they would have would have diverged. And the writing system, same thing. You know, initially the Carthaginians would have probably used the, you know, the Phoenician Phoenician um, uh, way of, of writing the letters, but then they changed. Gotcha. Um, and we can see this in neo Punic writing that the that the writing has changed. Um, so they, you know, like English and German, but also like um, English dialects um, can be quite different. Okay, so if you traveled from the U.S. to um, parts of England, it would be quite difficult sometimes to understand people. Right, you know, like Scotland. in Scotland sometimes and things yeah. like that with a thick accent. But it's not really just an accent, though. It's definitely a sort of a different language because you did you said the letters were different too. Did you say that? 
Yeah, so they started doing they started do they they were using the, the the letters start looking different. So it's it's if you if you fast forward English They didn't have any grammar police there, I guess. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you have now English has this thing that's called the standard language, which is the only thing the glue that holds everything together. And funnily enough, it's the writing system, right? Because if the writing system weren't so anachronistic, you you wouldn't be able to re- read each other's emails anymore. Right. You know, if you used your normal pronunciation, if somebody from, let's say, Scotland used theirs and wrote wrote things like that in emails, you would have trouble reading right. emails. Right, correct. You know, or t- think of the vocabulary that you have or the words that you use, you know. Right, that and then it, just take a couple hundred years more than just what we have, yeah. and then the languages really start to diverge. Plus, they're not watching TV and sending each other emails. Yeah. There's no grammar police. There's no encyclopedias, or I should say dictionaries. Yeah. There's no yeah, exactly standard like of whatever Webster's stand, whatever that one was. You know, all the writers yeah. always had to read, right? When you're in school, the standards and protocols. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so fascinating. Be, yeah. If you didn't have that, you would um, end up where speaking different languages. And, you know, you can see this with um, German, German and English are reasonably far apart. But take German and Dutch, for example, where if you, if you, if you, if you, if you speak German, if you can read German, you can read Dutch sort of if gotcha. you know the. You know, so that would have been a similar situation. German and Dutch were probably this approximation of Western and Eastern Phoenician, Western Phoenician being Punic. Gotcha. Sorry to send you on a tangent there. Just no, no, that's that's totally cool. So, so, so that's the so. So these are interesting things. Um, and and the writing system is important because you um. So if you think about the kinds of contacts that we have, so we have words that have to do with um, government warfare. Navigations, especially seafaring, there are a lot of words like that. Um, to, to us, I think the crown witness is the word for the noble, for the noble uh, ruling class. So the the word for um, the ruling class or for the nobility in modern English is French, right? It's it's noble or nobility. That's a French word. Okay. Um, the um, original word um, in Old English that was used for this was Athel. Which is in you know words names like Athelstan and lots of kings are, have this sort of um, okay yeah word. Um, and this was was replaced um, because England was conquered by the French. I okay? gotcha. Um, Ten sixty six. Um, you probably have you know you know you, you know about this and and the fact that the, in ten sixty six, the ruling class um, was exchanged for ruling the ruling uh, for for speakers of French. Right. Okay. okay. So in the conqueror didn't speak English. He spoke Norman French. Gotcha. So 300, for 300 years, the English kings didn't speak English. They spoke French. You know, so during that time, a lot of things were changed. Among the among those, the words for the ruling class. Okay, quite naturally, because the French noblemen didn't want to call themselves Ethel because I mean they didn't even speak English. Right. You know, they were the nobles. So even if you're speaking English and it's French, you would say that's the, you know, you wouldn't say that's the Ethel. You'd say that's the nobleman or the whatever right. the French word is. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, middle, middle um, old French. Right. You know, and um, so, you know, you, you may know, you may not know that 40% of the English, the whole entire English lexicon, the, the words are French. Makes sense. 40%. So that comes for, because of the... French conquering the rulers, I mean, the ruling class being French for 300 years, even though the yeah. people were not French for 300 years. That's there right. was just only the ruling class. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you had a small number of, of, of French speakers. And because of that, I mean, some of the words came into um, English later, you know, um, when when the language of the nobility in general in Europe was French in the 18th century, for example, right. um, was like chandelier or something. Um, but um, the, the the largest part came during that time. Okay. Um, but especially, and that's the that's that's what we need to that's what we need for for our argument for the for for the Carthaginians is that especially they're concentrated in areas of government, semantic areas of government, warfare, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's quite natural if you are the ruling power, you 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 use your ruling your vocabulary specifically in those areas that are relevant, and if you're the dominating military dominating power, you use them those for you know, administration. Um, and those words that have to do with the legal system and that sort of thing, right? The, 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 la- the language of the English legal system of the courts was French until the 17th century or so. I see. You know, so it has a far-reaching impact. So so now, when we look at Germanic, we find, and, and Theo Fenneman realized this, you know, in the 1980s, he realized that the vocabulary that we have in Germanic, which we can't explain, which is not, which we don't know where it comes from, concentrates in those areas, government, administration, warfare, social sort of concepts, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he realized immediately that this is the same as what we have in English. So when we explain those words, we have to assume that those people who brought the Germanic people, who gave the Germanic people those words, were from a higher social um, standing, not from a lower Social standing, they, they were dominant. Okay, because yeah. normally when you dominate someone, when you colonize people, you don't use their words for the nobility and for the for for, for government and administration, right. unless that society is culturally far higher. Right, okay? I'm the king, like, I'm the boss. You're going to join my army. If you if they say, "What's that thing over there?" and we never saw one, and they say, "Well, that's a a hill or whatever." That'd be their yeah. language. Or what is that you're eating? Well, that's a chimichanga. Okay, that's yes, what I'll call exactly. it. But, but I'm the yes. king. You don't call me a Ethel. That's it. Yes, yes, exactly the same argument, right? So, um, so then, then, then you know, we look for you look for um, you look for superpowers, and you look for sort of higher, and, and then you sort of say, okay, well, you know, what's the sort of what's the sort of connection here? And then it turns out you um, look at um, you know. The Punic words for those things, um, and um, sometimes you have to look further into other Semitic languages because Punic isn't very isn't very well. We call it attested. There's not a lot of records of yeah, Punic. Yeah, I was wondering where you even find it. Well, there is a lot of there's a lot of inscriptions okay. all around the Mediterranean, but there is very few in terms of texts. Very very little thing because the Romans destroyed everything. Right, and they wrote everything on papyrus too. So. Yeah, well, the, the, the Romans. I mean, right? yeah, 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 and, and 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 tablets. But the the thing is that the um, so the the, the Phoenicians didn't write a lot, but there were, for example, uh, um, where there there were leaders in agriculture at the time, and this was because they um, in Carthage had a limited area, um, and that was it was a big city, so they had to innovate ag- agriculturally, and the Romans translated all their um, agricultural stuff into Latin because um, it was so it was so leading in in the time. That's amazing. But because Carthage was so powerful, the Romans didn't want to take any risks. And um, we we know this, you know, story. The, the the Second Punic War was quite it was quite annihilating for Carthage in the yeah. sense that Carthage wasn't able to do much more after right. the Second Punic War. 
Um, and um, but the Romans, you know, not everyone, but we all remember that uh, Cicero, um, uh, yeah. C- Cato, sorry, said um, he ended every single speech in the Senate with this, the words, I, I'm of the opinion that Carthage has to be destroyed, you know? <laughs> right, nice, right. And he said it every single time. And, you know, after a few years, the Roman Senate sort of gave in and said, all right, let's, let's annihilate. And the reason was because Carthage became, it came crawling back. Right. You know? And it turned out that the Romans had to beat them again and then um, took all the, the, the weapons away and um, they had to give up all the weapons. And then, um, then the Romans again said, okay, that's enough. Then, you know, they can't do anything anymore. And then again, you know, um, it's, let's be safe. Let's be safe, you know. And then they, they, they wanted to attack Carthage again. The Carthaginians in, t- in a very short amount of time produced a lot of weapons and it took the Romans quite a bit to uh, finally, um, overcome, um, the resistance and, um, and, and, and conquer Carthage. And then what they did then is well known, the raises of the ground mm-hmm. and put salt. 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 Yep, I always remember that. Even as a kid, when I tried to kill the yeah. ants in my own house, they put salt on them. Yeah, so they were thorough because they didn't want this this you know this giant to get back up again. Right. And the 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 Carthaginians, they were so um, they had such a massive sense of identity that for hundreds of years after the defeat and after total Romanization, they still called themselves called themselves Canaanites. You know for four or five or six hundred years after that. That's amazing. I read that in one of your on your comment to somebody and I, I did not know that. That was definitely eye opening. So when Augustine, St. Augustine, who was a Christian missionary, rocked up uh, in that area, who was himself of Phoenician descent, rocked up there in, in Africa and wanted to convert people to Christianity, people still said they were they were they were Canaanites. Wow. You know, and that was in 400 AD. That was like, you know, 500 years, over 500 years after the destruction of Carthage. That's amazing. You know what's amazing to me too is it's in the Bible it says that the Canaanites were all destroyed and they've been using that name for a thousand, <laughs> thousand years after the thing was supposed to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the the, the term Canaanites is used for. I mean, lots of different tribes sort of use this sort of label. I mean, of course, there was also the, the label of um, of people speak spoke Hebrew, right? Okay. And that was because these languages are closely related. In fact, the Hebrew grammar. Um, and and the lexicon is very close to anything that's Phoenician, also Punic, and it can be used very often as a, as a proxy. And they didn't have vowels. Hebrew doesn't have vowels, right? So does Punic and Phoenician also not have vowels? Yeah, they all have vowels. They just don't write them. Oh, I see. Oh, they don't write to, them. I see. Yeah, this is what this is what has to do with the fact what I what I said before about you remember when we talked about the change of vowels um, yeah. to express tense? Yes. So in Semitic languages, the way this works is like that. You um you insert. You have got a like it's it's almost like you've got you've got a a, a, a skeleton of consonants, right? So imagine you had um, for sing you only had certain. Mm. Okay. And the vowel would change depending on whether this was a verb in the past tense or a noun or an adjective or something, right? So we have this in English to a degree with a word like bind. Okay, so we've got bind as a verb. You have um, um, bound as a form of the past tense, and then we have band, you know, as an as a band that you know binds something together, or as a musical band. Okay. Which is a noun with a different vowel. Gotcha. Yes. And you have a bond. Yeah, same thing. So Semitic languages do this a lot. They do this systematically, so you can predict the meaning 
of a word with a particular skeleton, with a particular root meaning like bind or sing or something, you would know, is this the singer? Is this the book if it's about reading or whatever, right? So would they say it, the vowel, but not write the vowel? Is that what you mean? Yes. They say the because vowel, but they don't write it. So you have to know what it means. Even like read and read, like the R-E-A-D. You have to under know which way it's meant. I read the book. I'm re I, you know, you better go read the book, but it's spelled the it's same. It's a bit like that, yeah. So it's a bit like if you imagine you you have this the the bind example again, and you always only write B and D. Okay. Yeah. And then you say, for example, um, you know, so you have the B and D was good last night, and then you you, you think, oh, maybe it was the band, you know, because okay. you look down in the sentence, and then you predict, oh, you know, so so because you can predict which vowel to insert, you don't have to write them. I see. Um, however, most Semitic languages eventually developed um, um, kind of letters for vowels. So Hebrew, Arabic, and also um, late, which we call um, Neo-Punic in the second century um, BC, they invented um, letters. So they used they used um, other letters for vowels because it became uh, it's it's quite difficult to read a language that doesn't write vowels, even right. if they're yeah, it's not practical. <laughs> right. I guess it was probably hard to scratch all those things, those vowels out, you know, when you were writing on clay or with ink or whatever, so be more economical. Yeah, maybe it was a space thing too, yeah. Yeah, um, space too, yeah, I didn't think of that, right? You only have so much, it's not like we have paper everywhere here, but paper was definitely so, not. So, 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 so the parallel is where these words, so we're looking for these words and we found that, you know, the, the, there is a word in, in, Punic in in, in in Hebrew really means um, the word the word that would be Ethel really means sort of ruling class. It also means um, root and, and and very often the word for ruling class is you know you're of a good um, root you can say or a good family or something like that. And okay. we had loads of other words. So the words for for the plow, you know the the plow that plows the field. Um, the, um, the 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 Semitic people had a, a the Carthaginians had a particular type of plow, like a more advanced plow than the scratch plow that we, that, you know, the Germanic people used. Okay. And the word plow actually, you know, denotes the more advanced type and not the not the older type. Right, because it's a plow. It's like a tractor. It's like not a plow, yeah. whatever they call it. It's a whole different instrument. Yeah. So English has an archaic word for the scratch plow, which is called ad. Okay. And that was the original word. Um, so um, so all of this um, together, so we have words in particular semantic domains that indicate, you know, that the, the indicate the influence of a higher, you know, socially more superior group. We've got the we've got um, particular structures in the language that um, suggest that people have learned this particular language. OK, so there must have been a lot of people who um, were able to uh, speak Punic. And um, you know, Germanic in this case, because the types of the types of phenomena that we find in the language um, are of of a kind that requires bilingualism. You can't just take a few words. You know, you have to know those languages. I understand. That is and so the third cool. part. Hmm, sorry. That is really cool. To, you know, found this. And the third thing is is the is the writing system, because. You see, you can borrow a writing system if you have casual contact, like trade contact. But what the Germanic people did was they adopted the writing system to suit their needs, which is something you can only do if you really understand both languages. 
And it's not the case that they did this like the Greeks did it, that they just adopted the system um, in a Greek way. The Germanic people adopted it in a particular way that, that, that requires them to know Punic. And I'll give you an example. So in in the in all of those older languages, um, in Germanic, but also in Greek, um, you have things that are called long consonants. Okay, so you know you might you might know this from Italian. So in Italian you say spaghetti with a long t. The t just takes a bit longer. Okay. You know, lots of languages have sure, Finnish right, hand. yeah. Um, but when we speak Italian, when we learn the word spaghetti, we actually don't do this. We just have a, a normal t, right? Right. So all Indo-European languages have these long consonants, um, and um, Semitic languages have them too. But in Semitic languages, they're only ever written with one letter, not with two letters. Okay. And again, because they're predictable, you can predict when they occur. You, you know because of the grammatical form. Okay. So all um, when when Greek adopted um, the, the the Punic al the Phoenician alphabet. They um, wrote their long consonants with um, two consonant symbols, and so did the Romans. Okay, everybody did this. Okay, except for the Germanic people, they only ever write one consonant, just like the Phoenicians or the any Semitic people or the Carthaginians would do it. And you can only know this if you know Carthaginian languages or if Semitic languages if you know Punic. Okay, if you know this, if you don't know this writing rule, if you just adopt the letters. And you don't know the writing rule, you automatically will write, you know, some kind of indication of the long consonant because it's important that you have a long consonant there. So the Germanic people didn't do that, right? Uh huh. I'm like um, stunned. I'm amazed with everything. That's why I'm just. They have a writing rule that they can only have if they know the original writing system more closely than just knowing the letters. Okay, it's if um, so. For example, in in um, in Australia, there's many indigenous languages that don't have writing systems. Okay, because okay. writing systems were never developed. Now, many people um, invent writing systems for those languages based on English. Okay, so they use the English writing rules um, to represent indigenous languages. Okay, and the rationale behind this is that. The, the, the indigenous people in Australia have, have, of course, had to learn English. So most of them know English and they, you know, lots of them can read English. So they understand the English writing rules and they can read their own languages used, using the English writing rules. But this wouldn't work if they, if they weren't able to read English. They couldn't do this because um, the writing rules would have to be learned. And that's the same there. If you just use the letters, you, you, you end up with a system that's like Greek. Or Latin, um, or Etruscan, but if you um, speak Punic, you can use the Punic writing rules, and that's exactly what the Germanic people did. So, like, how do you find, how, where do you find the Proto-Germanic texts and things like that to read? Okay, so Proto-Germanic is what we call a reconstructed language. Okay. So what you do is, because Proto-Germanic, the, the only things that are close to Proto-Germanic are some early runic writings, but they are um, they're already very close to the period when the Germanic languages were had had already broken up into the three branches that we recognize now: North, West, and East Germanic. Okay. 
Um, so what you do in historical linguistics, this is, this is nothing fancy, this is just what you normally do, is you reconstruct um, prior stages of a language through the combined evidence of the, of the languages that you have evidence for. Okay, so in other words, you look at Old English, Old High German, Gothic, Old Norse, which are the primary, the primary witnesses of the oldest uh, written languages of the Germanic branch, and you compare. And you, um, from the comparison, you can, you can reasonably, with reasonable certainty, infer what Proto-Germanic would have looked like and sounded like. That's that's got to be very tedious. It's tedious, but I mean, this work, you know, has been going on for three hundred years or so. I mean, it's know, like verbal. Is, it's like linguistic archaeology. Like archaeology yes. seems to be tedious. You're digging a little tiny piece of sand and just to find yeah. the smallest thing. So you know, I'll give you an example. Um, if you're comparing um, English and German, let's say, um, you um, notice repeatedly that um, wherever English has uh, the sound th, um, German will have a d. Okay, mm. uh, and you do this with you know hundreds of words, and you notice this is always the same thing. Okay. Okay. So first of all, you conclude you conclude that the languages must be related because otherwise you would not have the systematic correspondence. It right. Because be other accident. languages that aren't even close don't have. It's not just a coincidence. Yeah. They're not even close. And you have hundreds of words like that, right? Right. So that's the first. Thing. The second thing is that the linguist thinks about then what would the ancestor have looked like? You know, what what's the sort of possibilities for what the um, form that came before the third or the de you know, um, what would the identity be? Okay, it's a bit like if you have two siblings, you think about what the parents could have looked like. Okay, yeah, I got right? you. So you have you have two redheads. You know that the parents must have, must have had some redheads, red genes. Right. In them, otherwise, do you yeah? do you ever find like hard evidence by just like oh well, I see I told you so like do you ever find the parent you know maybe like an old an old inscription or something that. You didn't, nobody knew about, and then it comes up and it proves, proves yeah. those theories. I mean, we haven't found anything for Germanic, but the, the 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 best the best case the best known case for this is Hittite. So Hittite was developed discovered relatively late in the historical game. It was discovered only in the early 20th century, and uh, the the linguists had postulated the existence of certain sounds based on the reconstruction um, of the other languages. And then um, they found the evidence in Hittite that the, these sounds were actually there because they were written. Awesome. Perfect. So That's this happen, um, happens all the time. Uh, for um, for um, this old, these older periods of time, you've got to think about the fact that um, most records have disappeared yeah. from most older languages, right? Um, you know, um, so in Germanic context, most of the stuff would have been written on wood, carved on wood. Okay. And that's perishable, um, you know. Yeah, I um, just meant so, in general anyway, so that was exactly what yeah. I was meaning. I, I, I was just, yeah, definitely. So that was that was the, the runic alphabet. And there is other stuff which had been known for quite a while, but no one ever made sense of it. So the Germanic mythology, so half of the religion is strange in the sense that it's not lining up with the Indo-European world. Okay. Okay? So something like Woden, like... Um, oh, um, Odin yeah. lines up nicely with something like Zeus or Jupiter. That's that's quite nice and in the European. But there are other things like um, you know the the god Balder, who's a dying god, and 
as a, a lot of a lot of gods in the in the, in the Germanic pantheon who come from the sea and then uh, have a, a, a wage war against the established gods on the on the on the land and then they they then there's a peace and then they exchange hostages and the new gods they you know settle in a different part of heaven as you might want to call it and um so in the 19th century it was common knowledge that these parts these this part of the germanic mythology those foreign gods they looked like semitic gods they had all the properties of many gods that were prevalent in the mediterranean um you know um so the the goddess Freya has um has has a has a has a chariot drawn by cats for example <laughs> which is very strange you know and then there is a and then there's 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 a, a wild boar and, and some pigs play a, a role and um all of this was in the 19th century was lined up with many of the semitic gods um you know there's a, there's a chariot drawn by lions there is um there is the fact that the god Baal who's prominent in the bible actually right. Um, is a dying god, um, and actually turns out, and this is, and, and so, so this was known. It was forgotten, of course. It was conveniently forgotten, especially um, by the Nazis in Germany, because um, in the 1920s and 1930s there were, you know, there's books about this, you know, and that was, you know, conveniently forgotten, of hmm. course, because it didn't fit, you know, you just right. imagine, you know. Um, and then um, it was, it was gone, you know, from the, the later, later books don't mention this anymore. And um, my co-author, Theo Fenneman, looked at the world, the word Balder, who is a, a, an important Germanic god, um, who is one of those foreign gods. And um, it, he noticed that the Punic form of the word Baal, who, which is the main god of the Carthaginians, right? right. It's the supreme god of the Carthaginians. Yep. The main epitaph, the main, the main um, way they expressed it on the, on the, on the inscriptions is actually Baal Adir. Which means the Lord Baal. The Lord, yeah, okay. And the funny thing is that in Punic um, pronunciation, this would have sounded almost like Balda, pretty much the same thing. Oh. But oh, only Baal. in the Punic form. Oh, Baldur, oh, I gotcha, yes. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, the, it's not, it's not the the rest of the Semitic languages. They just use Baal, but in this specific form, this is specifically Punic. I, yes, wow. So Baldur is pretty much like Baal. It's yeah, it's like Baal, it's it's like Balda in 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 Germanic and has all the same properties. Um, and there's a lot more that we have in the book about this, which is as I said, not our discovery, but we just put it together. So you know, this this the picture that emerges is that you have all these words from domains that indicate you know contact with a superior um, socially superior group. We've got um, bilingualism uh, from the evidence that's uh, suggested by the grammatical parallels that you find between Punic and Germanic. And then we've got this other evidence from the runic writing system and the mythology that points in the same direction. You have a superior colonial power that settled in, you know, whatever is what's now Denmark or northern Germany for a longer period of time, because otherwise you wouldn't have got that bilingualism and you wouldn't have got the sort of deep influence on the writing system and on the grammar. And um, and that's that's how how Germanic was influenced. Well, I'm definitely sold on yeah. your. So, do you think? So, do you think that there was trading posts, but more than just yeah. trading posts, right? Because they were sort of dominating the all the people, right? Yeah. So when you when you so what we have to do is we have to look at other cases where we know that the Carthaginians 
were there. So because we have got, um, you know, texts that tell us this or because we have physical evidence, which is largely Spain and the Mediterranean. And we have lots and lots of evidence about this. We know we know exactly what we what we would have what we what we should have expect if the Carthaginians had colonies, had colonies up there. Right. We would have expected that they had. They started out with smaller trading outposts and then would have had um, smaller settlements. And um, what would have happened is that the um, local population would have quite quickly, um, after some initial resistance perhaps, um, that would, would have been the case for Libya, for example, but also in Spain, would have started um, being very attracted to those colonies because of the immense wealth that the Carthaginians had, but also the whole civilizational advances that these guys had. So right. they would have worked for them and with them. So there would have been right. a hybrid, a hybrid culture very, very, very quickly, which is just what like we always have. I mean, just like the Romans did, and yeah. But the Carthaginians were different to the Romans and to the Greeks. They were actually quite accepting of foreigners. So foreigners could even be in the army, and um, so they were actually a bit more democratic in that sense. So mm-hmm. foreigners would. Well, it would have been easier for foreigners to actually, you know, uh, advance in the social hierarchy. So we would expect, you know, some some colonies um, in on the coast because they always were, would have been in coastal coastal areas, and um, there would have been an immense attraction for people. So there would have been nice trading outposts, but you know, initial, you know, then after a few hundred years, you know, we we can only. You know, I think two or three hundred years because then Carthage, Carthage, Carthage gets destroyed and then you don't have any contact. Um, but, um, you know, for that period of time, quite a hybrid, um, settlement. And, um, but we can't forget that in the, in the hinterland, you would have had a lot of people who, um, didn't participate in this, who were influenced by it, but had no chance to participate. In other words, they were just, they weren't bilingual, they were Germanic, but they were just influenced by it, but they weren't participating in the upper class type thing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there are people who, um, you know, uh, chop down the the trees to bring the wood to the settlement. You know, they learn a few things about religion, maybe, and a few other things, but they don't get immersed like it. They don't become bilingual enough. So, but these guys are going to be important later on. And some of them will be disgruntled by the fact that they miss out. Um, so this is what we have to imagine on the basis of what we know from Spain and from Northern Africa, and um, so we would have expected would have would expect settlements, and we would also expect, and this is interesting that the, the Carthaginians didn't have any, they didn't have their own art forms, so they didn't have like um, you know the Egyptians or anything specific things that you you would expect in terms of art. Hmm. So you can't find any. I mean, if you find evidence of, you know, let's say, um, an Egyptian sort of piece of jewelry or something, then this may as well be Carthaginian because these people produced this, uh, produced um, um, artifacts, you know, cultural artifacts and art from other cultures in mass and they sold them. Right. So there's nothing that we could say that this is Carthaginian art like style like we have in Rome and in Greek and any other culture. But they may have been making it all. Yeah, but they, they've been reproducing it, yes. Right. So the Carthaginians, the other thing that the Carthaginians were interested in in the north was um, clipfish. So they're in, they were the, 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 had the major monopoly on, 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 on you know. Um, what are they, clipfish? Fish. That's, it's, 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 it's a type of fish that's, um, that you can, that's, that's almost conserved, right? Okay. 
um, like salted and, fish, like that kind of like preserved yeah. fish. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. And the major thing was amber. Okay, um, sure, yeah. The Phoenicians had always been the had always had the monopoly on amber, and the Carthaginians took that over. And amber was on, the only source of amber in antiquity was uh, the, the Baltic Sea. Right, and the Phoenicians had it before, so there could have been the contacts were already there from them up the rivers and that kind of thing. Yes, yeah, so they're not, so there's there's, a, there's definitely a trade route from overland, right? Okay. But if um, if you have a trade route that goes um, overseas, and if you are the um, seafarers and no one else can interfere, that's mm -hmm. much better than being yes. waylaid on, right. you know. So there would have been there would have been a great incentive to um, to get amber. So. Just to, to answer to get more to your question, so what you would expect in this situation would be the only things that the Phoenicians in general did, which was um, you know um, characteristic feature of their settlements, would have been a, a harbor. You know, they had quite sophisticated harbor okay. um, constructions. Um, and the other thing that the Carthaginians were known for, um, and despised for was the fact that they sacrificed children. Yeah, right. They sacrificed people. And that was something Oops, that they did. That's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, clearly wasn't, it's not a highlight in their in Yeah, the, it's like, oh, let them have their religion however they wanted, but they burned children. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't, yeah. So that's what they did when they got into trouble. They, they, they sacrificed people to appease the gods. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah. Um, you know, you, no, you can't. Yeah. It, it can't all be bright. <laughs> no, right. Hey, you know, that's. Uh... But the, the, on the bright <laughs> side, the, the the bright side is so so bad. The sounds for the archaeologists is that you find these um, places where um, the children were sacrificed, mm -hmm. and there were they were an architectural feature of Punic settlements. I've heard of that. Yes. The trouble, though, is, and that's been known as well. Both um, harbor areas and this um, sacrificing place, um, they don't last very long because harbor um, areas, they get um, superseded by the next settlement and those um, children sacrifice places, they just don't make it for very long because, you know, people, you know, the next culture doesn't do that and then it just disappears. Mm -hmm. And they're probably just, burned up mostly, too. I guess there's not a lot of evidence left. Yeah, and you just you just can't you know it's it's you have to dig deep you know to find something. I see, right? So and if they're on a and if they're on a coastline, there's probably already another city there too. So it's not like you just find this empty yeah. space in a desert, you can just go digging that. Yeah. So um. So this the situation that we expect is that we have a few um settlements dotted along the coastline, um, and they have those features. That's what we expect. Now, when you look at the archaeological, you know. When you look at the archaeological situation in northern Germany and in Denmark, you find no one's ever looked for for, for Punic settlements. Well, we'll put you That's in touch right. with our archaeologist friend, Ray, Mr. Magnuson. Yeah. yeah. What's his name? His name is Radar Magnuson. It's R-E-I-D-A-R. -E I'm trying to pronounce it. And Dan had him on, and that podcast is, is published. And, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. And it's funny because Dan mentioned that maybe fan of history will be the great one of the best source of information on that topic <laughs> maybe a so, good idea to look at that maybe we'll yeah we'll definitely after we'll put you in touch with him dan has his information it's funny as dan just ran into him at a party and he said oh mm. i'm an archaeologist in sweden and you know in sweden they live in sweden and of sweden you know in the north area and he had this, you know so the whole period pretty much everything you're talking about the whole thing Mm. Maybe we should talk to him because that's the problem, you know. So no one's ever looked, and the coastline is different these days. 
and most most of this uh, Carthaginian settlements now would be somewhere either you know in the sea or they would be on yes. land somewhere where no one would ever look. He did mention that they did say, that. and they they're well aware of it there, obviously in in, in Scandinavia. But that was something I learned from from that podcast. Yeah. He also mentioned that I remember, and I was reading it, I think, in your article, and then I I have the script from them talking, and he oh, mentioned great. that there was some um, in in Spain there was rock art that was very similar at Scandinavian. They didn't really understand why it was so yeah. similar, but this seems to be the reason. So it's, there's a funny thing about this is that the you know you know how what what, what um, Viking uh, ships look like right yeah and there is rock art in Norway I think on a, on a cliff somewhere where um, obviously you know some somebody um, depicted um, ships at some point and um, these ships look exactly like Venetian ships oh my gosh well that seems like a you know I mean that's not an that's not a UFO building a building a you know a pyramid well, that's that's a real thing. <laughs> It's, it's like there's, there's bits and pieces of evidence, right? And you put them together, and then um, what we have dealt with in the past is that people have either ignored this or tried to sort of put down each individual thing as coincidence, but because no one's ever put the whole thing right, together. Right, you guys are putting it all together now, and it's just like one after another after another. It's going to be a bit hard, and we, we look forward. I mean, one thing that we really want is that we want some engagement. You know, We're sick and tired of writing stuff, and no one's ever engaging with it. Well, people like to think of, you know, the whole, you know, was there a war? What, how did it happen? They like to you paint a picture. I know that's, you know, a lot of, it's most people that are fans of history and interested in history. It's hard to do how you do get dig into the linguistic, like so much into it. I just, and you just dig into like archaeologists dig and you guys do all the work for everybody and then put it all together. And it's, that's awesome because then we could figure out what happened because people are, I think really are interested in understanding yeah. you know where do we come from where did this stuff happen yeah so the article on the conversation had over um 78,000 reads in that one month really which... good for you that's awesome so it shows that people are interested in this you know for sure for sure and then it was uh, cracked me up when the one guy said he said this is fake news because you use the word phoenician i was like Okay, yeah. did you want him to use the the Punic word for Phoenician? Oh. He was just trying to explain. And you were very, like, you know, diplomatic to say, like, I think that was a little but, over the top, saying it's fake news. Uh, but it was worse. There was one post, um, I can't remember when it was, but that was, that was obviously racist, and I had, to, I had to have it removed. Oh, I didn't see that one yet, because right before we, about well, a couple of days ago, great. I went through all of them. I didn't see that. That's terrible. No, no, it, it was removed very, very Good. quickly. Awesome. Um, and I didn't even bother replying because yeah, it was obviously neither. What about genetics? Um, so, is there any genetics in this area that it shows to some of you, what you're saying too? So the so the um, so the question is whether you get a genetic signal for this short amount of time. That's one question. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that the studies that we have reviewed in that area, um, there's not that many, and I think there's none really from the sort of area that we would need. Um, because you would need some genetic evidence, um, you know, from Denmark or Germany. We found two studies that um, detect some Mediterranean influence, but it's hard to say when sure, this happens. Sure, there's so much the Germans in the, serving with the Romans, the Romans up there. I mean, yeah. like you said in the beginning, humans have been mixing each other, with each other for for millennia. Like, for example, there is um, there's a lot of uh, Punic coins in Britain been found, lots of them. Okay. Um and there's even a Punic inscription in Britain, a new, a new Punic inscription. 
Um, and that's likely to have been from um, someone who's a Roman soldier. Oh, okay. Wow. Amazing. He grabbed, um, he, right. Yeah. Right. So it's you can't like, say that there was, there was a Punic settlement there because it came from there, but, but because of the time well, yeah. that, that it was found. You can for other reasons. So uh, on the Isle of Thanet, for example, in southern England, there is a grotto which is very similar to other kinds of um, religious grottos in in, in, in in the Punic world. Right. So there are reasons to assuming that there were actually settlements. Right, in so that's not a Roman thing. That's definitely a Punic thing. Yeah, so there's a few other things. Um, like, you know, the, the, the coins that were mentioned in, uh, mentioned in the conversation article. Um so there's a, there's there's a few more things that are point in this direction, but what's needed now is more targeted investigations and especially more genetic and archaeological exp- uh, investigations, and they just cost a lot of money. Right, and, and it's a hard area. It's just the you know the forests and the it's not as easy as you know digging in in the deserts, obviously. Yeah. So you would need. So what we're hoping is that the book perhaps gets picked up by someone who says, hey, you know, let's have a dig in Denmark. We got a guy for you. We're going to set you guys up. I'll let it sit. I think this is We great. got a guy. <laughs> Fan of history is going to be the place for this information, at least as we where it got started. And, and you probably keep coming back and giving us updates. And so there we go. It will be yeah, a great yeah. place to find out about this. You know, I've been I've been dreaming of this postcard of this Punic postcard, um, you know, that says, oh, you know, it's nice here in the colonies in the north. Um, it's quite <laughs> cold, you know. That would be the perfect. Life, the learning writing system. <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah. But so the, they, it seems like the colonies weren't that huge either. Like, you know, that they weren't like moving tons of people in colonists as yeah. opposed to you know moving there it was more like. More like the Dutch, you know, when they were, they didn't really colonize, but they had more trading posts. Well, that's how the Carthaginians are often seen. But in fact, when you look at what they did is they were actually colonizing. You know, there were some of the, some, some, some areas they started with trade and then they got bigger. But um, it's very clear that, you know, from the 5th century BC onwards, the Carthaginians, they, they stopped playing games. You know, they, they didn't just rock up with a trading group. They, they actually started actively colonizing. And the, the, the reason was they wanted to secure access to raw materials, access to trading, trading routes, and they just didn't muck around anymore. Right. Right. Um, so the, the, the archaeologists have looked at the, um, Report the, the 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 report that exists for the southern exhibition expedition. They are quite clear. They were they they're quite certain that the um, numbers that they give aren't exaggerated by much. You know, there were tens of thousands of people involved in this, oh, and there were thousands wow. involved in this. Yes, that's amazing. And so, so I, this is a weird. It's a little off. But why, why didn't the Carthaginians and the ever you know go after the Egyptians or do they just use them as trading partners and to set as customers? They never they, you know it doesn't seem like they went that way. Um, no, they they traded with traded. I mean, I mean, but they never had they never battled with them. I mean, maybe they were too powerful. I guess because they were t- over always part of some other empire. Yeah, Egyptians. The Egyptians have had gone down by then. I mean, by by that time. Egypt wasn't a major power anymore. Right, so I wonder why they never attacked it. It seemed like it might have been there right there. Well, they went to the west. They expanded to the west rather than to the east. Right. Um, well, maybe if they went there, they would maybe a history would have been different, right? They might have had a backup. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe um, you know, the, the the way they expanded was maybe it was also because the um, eastern Phoenicians um, had their sort of uh, sphere of influence and maybe they just um, 
went to the west, but they definitely expanded to the west and to the north. They right. didn't expand to the um, east. They did a little to the south, but um, not not to the east. Yeah, um, maybe that was because you know th- th- that's where they came. That's where they came from. Um, right, could have been one of their best customers. I'm thinking too. Maybe, but they traded in Egyptian art and they they faked um, Egyptian art and, and sold it. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean these guys. I mean these guys. Um, so Carthage was incredibly rich. Um, you know. Um, so um yeah so so that's why that's why i mean that's that's why they um that's why there's you know the 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 wealth and their um their power was so threatening that rome basically did everything um to crush them you know and it was with so that's the one last thing i was thinking about with rome is so you know the carthaginians were in spain and they were all over and then they were in italy and everything and i bet you at that time there was probably a lot of Punic words and language used, but then when the Romans became the, the you know the ruling power, that's why all those areas, yeah, kind of was lost, and now we have Latin there. But the yeah. Germans were never really conquered by the Romans, so it lasted. Yeah, so the northern part of of Germany, which is what Germania was, wasn't conquered by the Romans. Um, they gave up that after that disaster in the, in the Teutoburg Forest, and um, and that was it. Yeah, so the the, the Latinization hit Germanic later. But it hit Germanic, of course. I mean, all all, all the Germanic languages have loads and loads of Latin civilization loan words. Sure. But what must have happened, I think, what's realistic to assume is once the Carthaginians, so so the, the the story must have gone like this, which is what we know from the other areas. So when Carthage was beaten in the Second Punic War, they lost access to all their colonies. Okay, so the colonies were either taken over or set free. In most cases, they were taken over by the Romans. Um but even for hundreds of years later, the um, so in 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 in, um, in Sardinia, for example, the um, Sardinians used the Punic um, counting system and the Punic um, administration way of uh, administration sort of organization for for at least one or two hundred years after the Romans had conquered them. So what must have happened up there was that when the ties were severed to um, the motherland. As if, you know, nothing, nothing great would have changed immediately. There would have been a gradual re-Germanization, you know. So gradually, you know, Punic's been spoken maybe as, as even the main language in those um, colonies, and gradually people shift to mm-hmm. Germanic you know, over generations. Right. But those main words like shek, like the like the money word, yeah. and government and war and yeah. the plow, navigation, yeah. they sort of they stick around. Yeah, so we would imagine that at the turn, you know, when 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 so the, the the peak of the influence, you would have almost, you know, in those areas, you would have almost have like, you know, most people speaking Punic or a heavily influenced form of uh, uh, heavily Punicized form mm-hmm. of Germanic. And then when the hinterland, when 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 the, when the sort of colonies became weak, the the trading outposts or the the, the settlements became weaker because there was no connection to Carthage anymore, um, you would you would get gradually incursion by the hinterland people and that would roll would have rolled back some of the influence. But at the peak, we would expect that in those settlements there were almost punicized Germanic people. That's amazing. And I, I know I know we've been going a long time and I don't want to hold you up. I, I, one thing I kept thinking of from reading your stuff then is I remember Hannibal 
thinking that he was going to get some help when he land, once he landed across the Alps and was going to be in northern yeah. Italy. And I thought, well, how would he? I used to always think, well, that was like wishful thinking or something. But now what you're saying is they probably had a lot of connections there, which is, was a good idea. Yeah, but it, it was a bit far. Um, it was a bit far so, south from where their places were. Yeah, so it would have been, it would have been you know, a good thousand kilometers or so. Okay. Uh, um, but um, and that was um, and that was during the Second Punic War. Um, right. And we don't. I mean, you know, it's it's all it's so difficult to know. But um, sure. it would have. It, it was clearly it was clear the case that. Um, and you know, maybe it would be good to go back to the records and go back to the. Um, maybe you know, examine the genetic makeup of the uh, of Hannibal's armies to see whether there would have been. Potentially, some people from the Germanic yeah, true. colonies. I mean, they must have spies and contacts, you know, that kind of thing. Diplomats and say, you know, our, our general's going to be landing a thousand kilometers down. But send us some troops yes. down here. You know, it would make sense, for example, to maybe you know get some reconnaissance people down. Cause, sure, you know, right. You get on the river. You could. You could. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not looking at the map, so I'm the worst unless I have a map in front of me. It's, it's still, it's still a, a fair distance. Yeah. Right. Um, and at those at that particular period of time, um, you know, around about the third century um, BC, there wouldn't have been the extensive road network that the Romans right. would have had. Right, a thousand you know, kilometers through the forests of Europe would not have been like yeah. a, <laughs> not a good deal. All right, I was wrong on that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it could have been. And uh, yeah, it was it was a close call, you know, like in the end, um, that sure. the um, no that the Romans beat the Carthaginians was it was you know it was it was it was, it was tight. <laughs> sure, I mean, there's um, there's a podcast with like alternate history, and I think they have the Carthaginians win, you know, they continue, and I know I would listen to that one, and I remember seeing a book one time, a science fiction series where you know Carthage wins, and then Carthage goes out to space, <laughs> you know, so that's um. That's, uh, I guess it's a common theme in alternate history because it was so close. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same as like people saying Atlantis existed and it was, you know, it was a, a Semitic empire or something, you know, that, you know, people have said. It's hard to know because <laughs> we really don't have any much on that. We have much less than what we have for this here, right? Right. Well, this is solid history, though. I mean, this is solid work you guys have been done here, which is just amazing, really. Well, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's great. Oh, I, I mean, believe it. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, you've definitely done good work here. Um, when I first sent it even, you know, to Dan, who, of course, here, this he said, look at that. Maybe that's, you don't want it to be pseudo-history. And then I said, no, read it. And then he read it. He goes, oh, yeah, this is great. Because we get burned yeah. with the pseudo-history stuff. Yeah. We, I mean, this is what, you, what you're up against all the time. And, and there there is stuff out there that's fairly crazy. <laughs> and... Um, you know, it, it it takes a long time to sort of. I mean, even in our space, we have um, linguists who say crazy things, and um, and it takes a lot of work to engage with it and actually say, you know, demonstrate that it's incorrect. But you know, and right. I, I'd be happy. You know, we're, we're no one, most people in academia are actually happy to be proven wrong because you can learn something. Absolutely, if you're a true researcher, <laughs> scientist, whatever you are, you yeah. want to be exactly. Don't dig into your thought stuff. Say you're right. That's awesome. I'm not particularly, you know, like if, if somebody says, look, um, you um, you want to be right all the time because then you, you actually don't, you know, you don't learn. You exactly. Know? You do learn when, you, um, when, you, when you're wrong. And um, so hopefully we'll get some engagement with this, you know, some 
proper engagement. And I think and, that's um, where lay people don't get it right. They'll they'll say, well, these people, whatever the topic is, but let's say history. They'll say things like, well, the other historians that spent their life studying that, they don't want to be proven wrong if there's an Atlantis. Oh, we would love that, mm. but we just know yeah. that. Like I was watching one last night where they basically, the guy's theory at Graham, whatever his name is, his basic theory is that there was this huge, you know, advanced culture and it was in the Americas, but it left no material evidence because they were not materialistic, they were spiritual. But they had boats hmm. that went all over the world and taught everybody how to farm and everything else. Well, yeah, they must yeah, have to well. build the boats with something. That's what material culture means. It doesn't mean you're, you know, buying DVDs and stuff. It means you know, <laughs> material like metalworking and things. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Drives yeah. me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Real history is, you know, like to be able to just say crazy stuff like that doesn't doesn't need the work that you did looking into these hundreds of words. And I mean, that's I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I would I would be too difficult for me to just keep digging into it. I have a hard time sometimes, you know, just reading people's papers that are twenty pages long. So I could imagine what you do. It's it's, it's definitely good work. Yeah. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks. No. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh to my talk God, about for it. sure. We're definitely going to put you in touch with our archaeologist friend. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, thanks. Be and great I'm sure I that. missed a bunch of questions that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I think That's this right. was, I hope though. Actually, if maybe if the listeners have any, you know, questions or anything, if you send a message on our Facebook page or anything, and yeah. then um, we'll ask. And who knows? Maybe we'll, I, I hope we could come back. I mean, I hope you'll yeah. come back after we get some new information, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, that I'll, kind I'll, of thing, I'll, and yeah. talk more. I, I, I would definitely think that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. No, Did great. you want to add anything like where we, you know, anything about your? Oh, I think, I think we've overloaded people's brains enough. Yeah, I think we've got some good fans here. I think so. Hey, listen to, hey, if you're counting back from 1000 BC, to, <laughs> <laughs> and you're digging it, I mean, we must have some good, some good fans for sure. I sometimes I tell people like you know my regular life I'll say stuff like oh yeah we're on the 650s BC and people that are intelligent you know they'll say well I didn't know there was people back then or just <laughs> like that I'll be like oh yeah, yeah. there were yep yeah. <laughs> so our fans I'm sure are going to enjoy this for a lot all right well um, okay. well thanks if I could call you Rob but Doctor Mile no, no. Rob. Please come Rob. That's fine. Well, we'd like to definitely thank you for coming on our show today. Yeah, that's right. And um, I'll post in the show notes the links to um, his articles and any information. I'll put them all in the show notes, and then we'll be good. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.